Good morning. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say it is a good day to serve the Lord. Um, well, you may have noticed last week we announced that Robert Blazer would be here sharing, but as mentioned, uh, he has COVID today, so he wasn't able to make it, but we are going to reschedule him to come soon. Shadows. What is a shadow? According to Webster's Dictionary, it's the dark figure cast upon a surface by a body intercepting the rays from a source of light. Now, as humans, when we see a shadow, we know there's something casting the shadow. Have you ever been sitting somewhere and a shadow came out of nowhere and it scared you? I've had that happen a few times. You didn't know what the shadow was. Or a baseball game, it looks like a shadow of a ball is going to come at you and that is not the ball. But have you ever seen a shadow and immediately known what it was? Maybe, maybe a picture like this. Oh, not like that. That has shadows in it too. We will get to that picture of a shadow very shortly. Technical difficulties. Anyways, when we eventually get to it, you'll see the picture of a shadow of a dog. And uh, because we as humans know what things look like when we see that shadow, we can say, hey, that's a dog. But then if any of you have a dog or a cat, you can see at times they think the shadow is reality. And they'll chase it and they'll try to get it because they, they're trying to get something they can't get. They're trying to get something that is not reality. So in Colossians 2, Paul is going to talk about potential shadows that we could chase, not realizing the shadow is actually uh, pointing us to him. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, time to be together today. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your grace. Uh, thank you, Lord, for these songs that we sang, that, Lord, your mercy is more. We're so thankful for that truth. Lord, sometimes it's hard to walk in that truth. So we just uh, pray, Lord, today that you'll help us to walk in it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. Is there something I can do to help it go? Oh, Ben's on his way up. So I have all these scriptures to point to today. So when we get there, uh, we're going to read what we just read, what Ben just read aloud a moment ago. Uh, So then, just as you received Christ as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Last week we looked at Colossians 2, and we, we looked at this idea of being rooted and built up. And we talked about having gospel-grounded gratitude, of having our life founded on the gospel and having that... No, it doesn't work. We're good. Okay. All right, no problem. Don't worry about it. I'll go. We're kicking. We're gonna kick it old school. No PowerPoint. So this time, open up your scriptures because they're not gonna be right there. So open up your Bible, please, to Colossians two. You can do that every week too to follow along, but just it's not gonna be right there for me to point to. So open it up. So we are talking about gospel grounded gratitude. And the rest of chapter 2 
uh, Paul talks about what it looks like to have this gospel grounded gratitude. What does it look like to live in this reality? And in verse 8, which we just read a few minutes ago, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual force of the world rather than on Christ. And we talked about the danger of making our Christianity either about our emotions and allowing our emotions to dictate what we think about Christ, allowing our emotions to dictate what we think about God's word or allowing our experiences to dictate those things. And so throughout this whole series we've been talking about gnosticism. This this false philosophy that had entered into the church uh, in Colossae. And it was really formed on this idea of gnosis. Now, gnosticism is spelled with a G, G, N, gnosticism, and it's this idea of gnosis, knowledge, this higher pursuit of knowledge, this hope that you can attain this higher level of spirituality. And really, it trickled down from Plato. And Plato's dualism, where, where the, the things of, of, the, of heavens and, and the spiritual realm was good, but the physical realm was bad. And so they took that philosophy and they put a lot of religious stuff to it. And in their putting their religious stuff to it, what they did was they denied the humanity of Jesus because they said the physical is bad. And so therefore, Jesus couldn't be fully God. And so there were three things that entered into this false teaching. First was Judaism. This idea we need to follow all the laws, all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. Second, mysticism. This idea that there's this higher level of spirituality that we can get through these religious experiences, that we can get to this place where we have this fullness, this mystical union with God. And the third thing was asceticism. This idea of denying pleasures, denying things for ourselves so that we can attain a higher level of spirituality. And so the Gnostics saw if you follow these extra rules, you can continue to reach higher and higher and higher until you eventually get to this level of the fullness where you are living completely in the spirit realm, but no longer in the physical realm and therefore closer to God. So what Paul does is he takes that phrase, the fullness, and he says, you got it wrong. There's only one way to the fullness, and that's through Jesus Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness, verse 9, of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. We don't need any of those things to have the fullness. It's found in Christ, and Christ gives it to us. And we talked last week about the idea of taking a cup to the ocean. And there's no way to get all of the ocean into one cup. But when Jesus came in bodily form, he had all the fullness of God in his bodily form. He was fully God and fully man. But at the same time, we can take that cup and we can continue to fill ourselves with God. Jesus gives us this fullness. And so because this bad theology was pressing into the church, Paul gives them three warnings. The first warning we just read, don't let any anyone take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. The second thought was to not let anyone condemn you or, or judge you over your religious observation. The third thought was to not let anyone disqualify you over your lack of spiritual experiences. 
And so Paul says this fullness of life can only be found in Jesus Christ. In John 10, 10, it says the thief, that's Satan, comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And that is what these false religions were, were doing. They were trying to steal, kill, and destroy. But what did Jesus say? I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Some, some translations say to the fullness. Other translations say abundantly. Jesus has come to give us full life, abundant life. It can only be found in him. And so Paul's argument in this chapter is that Jesus plus legalism doesn't equal life. Jesus plus mysticism doesn't equal life. Jesus plus asceticism doesn't equal life. True life, full life, abundant life can only be found through Jesus. It can't be found through all these other pursuits. And so as the Christians were going about their daily lives, they had these people coming in and said, saying, oh, well, you know, really you're missing this. Really the problem is what you're doing here. If you were to just add this to your belief system, then you'd be okay. So let's look at these three areas. First, Paul says, therefore. And whenever we see the word therefore, what do we ask? What's a therefore? So he's going back to this whole section starting in verse 6. Therefore, since we have the fullness of Christ living us, since we've been united with Christ, since Jesus had victory over Satan and his angels that we're to live in this gospel-grounded gratitude. And if we're living in that, we can't let these outside people bring judgment on us, bring condemnation on us. We can't let them seek to guide our lives. And so we need to, and therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Now, our culture loves to quote this verse. I used to think when I was growing up, the verse that everybody knew was John 3.16, right? You saw it everywhere, and you're like, even people who aren't Christians know John 3.16. But the one verse that everybody in America knows today, judge not lest you be judged, right? Everybody knows that verse. Any person on the street can quote, can quote you that verse. But this is not what what Paul is talking about. He's talking about this exterior group of people that are going to Christians and saying, you need to live this way. You need to add these things to your faith. You need to believe these things. And he's saying, look, none of them can judge you. None of them can condemn you because your, your righteousness is found in Christ. And so in Romans 14 and 15, we have this idea of Christians judging other Christians and Paul comes in Romans 14 and says look you're going to have different views about these disputable matters so what you eat what you drink all these things and so make some concessions for those that are the weaker brother if you hold one thing to be really dear to you make concessions for those that that don't but here Paul isn't addressing that same thing he's addressing something completely different He's saying these, these outside forces are now trying to judge you and tell you you need to look this way. But 2 Corinthians 5, it says, So we make it our goal to please Him, Jesus. That's our goal. So as we talk about not being stuck to these rules, we have to understand that all of our life, really, is our goal should be to please 
God. So this doesn't give us liberty to just live however we want. Whether we're at home or in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things while done in the body, whether good or bad. Ultimately, Christ is the judge. We're going to be judged for what we do. First Corinthians 4, Paul says something very similar. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. And he says, why? It, it doesn't matter what they're saying about me, because my conscience is clear. Why? Because it is the Lord who judged me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in the darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. And at that time, each of us will receive praise from God. I love Hebrews 4. It's one of my favorite passages because it says that that, that God judges, God knows, everything is exposed to the Word of God, the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. So that means when you're at work, even if you respond with grace, God sees your anger as you respond in your head to that person. God knows your fears. He knows your distress. He knows your bitterness. He he understands all those things. So as Christians, we, we have a, a judge, Jesus Christ, but says we're not to let these others, these outsiders judge us. Well, judge us and what? He says, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. And Leviticus the, the, it has laws for what you can eat or drink. You can't have pork. You can't have shellfish, all those kind of things. In the early church, there was a lot of controversy about where you got your food. If it was in the market, could it have been something that was sacrificed to the idols. But Christians were only being judged by what they ate and drank from these outside forces. They were saying, look, you still have to practice the old Judaism, the old ways. They're saying, no, we don't need to do that but also what religious ceremonies they practiced. He says, with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Now, this trio of terms, this idea of religious festival, new moon celebration, Sabbath, it's really a catch-all to see all the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. So the religious festivals, there were seven of them every year. They happened every year, so your yearly festivals. The new moon celebration happened at the beginning of every month, so monthly, and the Sabbath happened every week. So he said, don't let people judge you on the things you do yearly, monthly, or weekly. Why? Because these are a shadow of things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. These are a shadow. They pointed to something else. They were something that pointed people to Jesus. Now, we don't have time to look at all the feasts, but I just want to briefly show how three of them, the first three that they practice, are a shadow. So Passover was a celebration uh, of the night the exodus, in the Exodus where the, the, ju- the angel of, of death came over to judge uh, the nation of, of Egypt. 
And the Israelites would kill a perfect spotless lamb and they'd spread the blood on their doorpost. And if they did that, then the angel of death would pass over them. And so that sacrifice was to cover them and cover their sins. And every year they celebrated that Passover meal. But in a few moments, we're going to celebrate communion where Jesus redefined that meal. This was a shadow that pointed forward to the Passover lamb, Jesus, who would die in our place and his blood would cover us so that we would be saved from eternal death the feast of unleavened bread began the day after the passover and lasted a week and during that time they were not to use any yeast because when they were in israel they had to leave really quickly so the idea is you need to be ready at any time to leave and the bread was to not have any leaven in it well throughout the whole bible often leaven is seen as sin And Jesus came as the bread of life, without sin. All of these festivals were pointing forward. They were a shadow to who Jesus was and what he would accomplish. The feast of the first fruits happened the third day, three days after the Passover, at the beginning of the spring harvest. And it was designed for Israel to express their dependence on the Lord and be thankful for his provision. So after those three days, they would take the first fruits of the of the sacrifice and offer them up to the Lord as a sacrifice. Well, on the third day, on that very day, on the day that the feast of first fruits would begin, Jesus rose from the dead. And in the scriptures, he's called the first fruits of oh, it's first Corinthians 15 here. Let's, let's read it. But Christ has indeed raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. And so Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection, the firstborn who had fallen asleep. He was resurrected. And so all of these annual festivals, including the four I just described, were a shadow. The monthly moon ceremonies were a shadow. In those, the Israelites would bring offerings to God, including a sin offering. And they were a shadow of Christ who would be our sin offering and pay our price. The Sabbath was a shadow. From Sunday, from Friday on sundown till Sunday on sundown on Saturday, the Israelites were to abstain from work. And they were called to remember the Lord and to remember his salvation act in Exodus. But the Sabbath was given to Israel. Not to the church. Sunday is not the new Sabbath. The Sabbath is still on Saturday. It was a shadow. And Hebrews 4 says that Sabbath rest is now found in Jesus. Now there's wisdom in taking Sunday as the Lord's day. And, and I talked about the principle of Sabbath and the principle of rest in one of our sermon. So it's, it's good to practice rhythms of rest But what was happening is the outside forces were going, you're not practicing the Sabbath. You're not celebrating the new moon festival. You're not celebrating, you know, the the feast of first fruits. You're not doing all these things. And, And Paul's not saying it's a sin to celebrate these religious festivals. It's not a sin to celebrate, you know, at the beginning of every month who God is. It's it's not a sin to celebrate the Sabbath. In fact, in Romans 14 and 15, Paul says, if you feel convicted to follow the Sabbath, then do so as unto the Lord. But Paul points out that all these things, religious festivals, ceremonies, and sacrifices, all they were was a shadow. When I look down here, I see my shadow. It points to who I am. All of these things in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. 
That's the amazing thing about God's Word. It's so amazing. I'm just always so, so amazed. All the connections, they all point forward to the coming Messiah, Jesus, that fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, hundreds to thousands of years after they would made, were made. Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things. They all pointed to Jesus. So Paul is saying, look, Jesus plus legalism, that, that doesn't equal life. If you just do all the right things, you're not going to find life. But he also says Jesus plus mysticism doesn't equal life. In verse 18, don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by the unspiritual mind. He says, don't let anyone who delights in false humility. This word can also be translated asceticism, but I'm going to go into that later. But often pride is the source, really, of improper worship. And what these people were doing is they were going into great detail over everything they had seen. See, this mysticism is this idea that you have these religious experiences. So they were worshiping angels. One of the things that some of the Gnostics believe, we don't know if this is exactly what was happening in Colossae, but if you've ever seen those Ru- Russian nesting dolls, you know, you start with a, a bigger doll and then there's a smaller one in it, a smaller one in it, a smaller one in it. I actually have one in my office from Ukraine with all the Red Wing flares from like when they had the Russian Five. Uh, it's kind of cool. But um, the idea was that God was, was in the spirit realm and he was so big and so great that, that we couldn't experience him in his fullness. And so God sent these lower and smaller versions to reveal himself. And some even believe that Jesus was the, the last one, kind of the smallest one. And so they would worship these angels that were before Jesus or bigger than Jesus. And they would look for these religious experiences. And they would say, this is, this is what you need to follow. You need to worship these angels. But not only that, they would say, look at this experience I had. Look at this moment I had. And Paul says they're, they're trying to share their spiritual experiences. Maybe you've experienced that before. You've had someone share some profound mountaintop spiritual experience. And you walked away going, well, I haven't experienced that. You know, even, even now there's, there's certain denominations that will teach if you don't speak in tongues, you don't have the Holy Spirit. That's nowhere in the Scripture. But they say, look, I had this experience. And since you don't have this experience, you should doubt your salvation. He says they're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. They're puffed up, but they don't realize they're headless. Jesus is the head of the church. They're walking away, walking around headless. They're just walking around, you know, trying to say these things, but they don't have connection to the only source of life. They don't have connection to Jesus Christ. So he says in verse 20, since you died with Christ to the element of spiritual forces of the world, why, though, you st- though as you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Last week we talked about how Paul said you died to this stuff. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your sins, you were dead. No life. Dead people can't do anything. So he says that's where you were in the uncircumcision of your flesh. But God made you alive. And he forgave your sins. If God already made you alive, why would you go back to all that dead stuff? It's useless. Verse 15. We didn't look at this last week because of time. But it says, 
And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing, triumphing over them by the cross. Here's the picture. In, in Rome, they would send out generals and they would have these victories. And when they had victories over these cities, what they would do is they would have this procession when they came back into Rome. And they would put first the captured soldiers and they'd have them go first. And then they'd have the army go through next. And then at the end would be the general or the Caesar or whoever. And everybody would cheer because he was flaunting his victory over these other nations, over these other cities, over these other people. And what he is saying here is that Jesus made a public spectacle of the demons and false religion. He triumphed over them by the cross. He was victorious. Victorious. There's no reason to go back to that stuff. Jesus already finished the job. So Jesus plus legalism doesn't equal life. Jesus plus mysticism doesn't equal life. And Jesus plus asceticism doesn't equal life. What do they say? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. This idea of asceticism is to deny any pleasure. Deny the things that, that bring good. You know, deny yourself pork or or bacon because well the old testament said you can't have it in the early church often there was a skewed view of sex because of this coming into the church and so uh some many people would would choose uh, celibacy and 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 go live in a monastic lifestyle so they wouldn't have any temptation um even right now a catholic priest have to be celibate um and they they choose that lifestyle they're denying that pleasure but even some early christian writers would said that the only purpose of sex is to have children and so they say only do it as much as you try to have children but god designed it to be good there's a whole book of the bible that talks all about it it's a good thing it's a gift from the lord we don't need to deny these things that are good gifts from god god has created us as human beings to enjoy pleasure now he puts guardrails god says it's designed to happen in the context of marriage in the context, he's, he's given us guardrails and, and a place for it to be according to his will, but it is for our joy. And so he says, these rules, verse 22, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with use, are based merely on human commands and teaching. Such regulations have an appearance of wisdom. So there's this appearance of wisdom in saying, deny yourself pleasures. Now, that is a very biblical concept. We're all called to lay down our cross, to deny yourself and take up your cross every day. So there is a good biblical principle to that. And that's why a lot of times this false truth has just certain elements of truth that you're like, well, that hits on some of these themes. But the true source of life is not asceticism. It's not just withdrawing from these things. It's finding satisfaction in Jesus. If you take someone who's an alcoholic and what you do to help them is you just remove all alcohol from the house. Say, this is how we're going to solve this issue. Eventually, they're going to be somewhere where there's alcohol. And without getting to the heart of the issue, without solving the heart of the issue, they're going to fall as soon as they have an opportunity. See, just denying ourselves the good, these, these pleasures isn't what brings true satisfaction. It's only found and Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only source of life. Christianity isn't about just not doing things. It's about finding satisfaction in Jesus Christ. He says such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. It, it looks wise, and it is at times wise to set guardrails. 
but with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. In other words, if you just try to not do stuff, it's not going to keep you from sinning. There was uh, some guy who like lived up on a pole, and he spent his whole life living up there so he wouldn't be tempted by anything. But guess what? While he was sitting up there, he was still sinning because we have a sinful nature. We're going to make those mistakes. And see, we can't just avoid all this stuff. And so we, have, we, we rightly rail against the prosperity gospel. The Bible doesn't teach us that, you know, God just wants you to be health, healthy, wealthy, and wise. But I think sometimes we swing the pendulum too far and we teach a poverty gospel. And so you can't enjoy anything. But our food is a blessing. Our, our house is a blessing of the Lord. Everything we have is a blessing of the Lord. It's to be used for His purposes. So if God has blessed someone financially, that blessing needs to be used for His purposes. So many missions movements have been started by people that were hard workers and faithful, and God blessed them financially, and they were able to use that blessing for the gift of the kingdom. And so we don't teach a prosperity gospel. We don't teach a poverty gospel. We teach a gospel that's life is only found in Jesus Christ. First John 2, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, for the love of the Father is not in them. And so we use that verse as, as, a, as a pounder verse. Don't, you know, don't, don't enjoy football. Don't do any of this stuff. But what is the love of the world? Verse 16, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So we're not to love things that are sinful. We're not to love things that lead us into sin. But in the same way that the prosperity gospel can fall short, the poverty gospel can fall short. And so we need to think about it. How do we have a right perspective of what we own? And really, I think the best perspective is everything I own is the Lord's. It's not mine. Everything I own is the Lord's. I've gone through times of plenty and I've gone through times of want. But when Jesus taught us how to pray, how did he teach us how to pray? Give us this day our daily bread. And, and the hardship as living in a, a, a very affluent society is to say, God, give us tomorrow's bread. Give us next week's bread. Give us our retirement bread. But our prayer should be, God, provide what we need so that we can honor you through what you've given us. So I, I want to end this with two applications and one question. First, application. You may say, I don't deal with legalism, I don't deal with mysticism, I don't deal with asceticism, but I do think Plato's dualism still exists today. This idea that there's a sacred and secular. So the first application is we need to stop separating the sacred from the secular. And so we think, okay, you know, I give God my church stuff, I give God my Wednesday nights, this is the area I give to God. But God wants all of us. That means when you're at your job, how you do your job either brings glory to God or it doesn't. How you treat your coworkers, how you interact with your boss, those are all ways to glorify God. If you're single, how you walk in your singleness, you can choose whether or not to glorify God. If you're married, how you treat your spouse, how you respond when there's struggles. That's a way to glorify God. As a parent, how you respond to your kids is a way to glorify God. As kids, how you obey your parents, you make a decision to glorify God. Too often we think of, you know, I know I struggled in school when I was in high school and college the first time. 
Because I saw it as, well, that's just school. And I saw church as church. And I tried to glorify God in ministry. And I didn't realize that God had called me to be a student. And I needed to do that to glorify God. See, we got to stop separating the sacred and the secular and saying God wants everything. Jesus wants to be Lord of our entire lives. Not just parts, not just pieces, but Lord of all. But also, we don't need to add anything to the gospel. Too often we do this. It's not Jesus plus legalism. That doesn't equal life. Jesus plus mysticism doesn't equal life. Jesus plus asceticism doesn't equal life. True life, full life, is found in Christ alone. Each of these false paths lead towards present dangers. The dangers of legalism is that we get this puffed up pride, which Paul talked about, that our holiness is based on our works, and then we judge others based on how they live. Do they stand up to our standards? We have these standards. Do these other people meet our criteria? The danger of mysticism is we value spiritual experiences or emotions higher than God's Word. And if we don't have these experiences, then we say, well, then God's Word can't truly be real. Or if we don't have the same experiences as someone else... Let me say, well, what am I missing out on? The danger of asceticism is by simply denying pleasures or good things in this world, often that doesn't lead to righteousness. It just leads again to kind of that legalism. Well, other people aren't denying the same things I'm denying. Well, what about your salvation? Salvation isn't attained by following a bunch of rules. It's not attained by having mountaintop religious experiences. It's not attained by depriving yourself of all physical pleasures. Salvation is found in Christ alone. I love this question the disciples ask. What must we do to do the works God requires? (laughs) I love it. They're like, okay, God, what do we have to do to do the doing? This is all action words. What do you require of us, God? What do you need us to do? And this is Jesus' response. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. That's astounding. Our salvation isn't based on works. But if we truly believe in Jesus, it should revolutionize everything we do. And when that happens, that causes us to live different. Out of gospel-grounded gratitude that we talked about last week. See, life isn't found in anything plus But Jesus, Jesus plus rules doesn't equal salvation. Jesus plus religious experiences doesn't equal salvation. Jesus plus deprivation doesn't equal salvation. Jesus says, what do you need to do? You need to believe on the one he has sent. So the question is, if you die tonight, do you have certainty that you're going to spend eternity in heaven? And if that certainty is based on rules that you follow... Or based on, well, I've lived a good life compared to others. Or anything other than the completed work of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not enough. It's not true salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the work you need to do. To believe in me. So, two points. We need to stop separating the holy from the secular. We don't need to add to the gospel. And one question. What are you chasing? What are you chasing? Do you find yourself spending your life chasing after shadows? 
Is your whole spiritual life built on trying to follow the rules when really the rules are to point you to who Jesus is and to point you to where you're lacking because you're going to fail? You're going to mess up. That's why it's so great that His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. So Jeremiah 22, God is confronting Jeremiah 2, sorry, God is confronting the Israelites, and he says that the people had committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. First, they said, Jesus said, I'm the source of life. If they stay connected to me, like we talked about last week, being connected to the vine, they would have life. But instead of having life, living water, this constant source of life, they forsook me. What did they do instead? They dug their own cisterns. Now cisterns were these places, these these things they built into the ground that would collect rainwater. And so often there wasn't a lot of rain in Israel, so they have these different cisterns when they were away from the rivers, so they could collect water. So instead of this choice, if you had a choice between being right by the river and having constant source of water or being away from it and having to, having to rely on cisterns, you would choose the living water. But it says not only did they dig their own cisterns, they were broken cisterns. They couldn't hold water. What's God saying to Israel here? I'm the source of life, and yet you've neglected me. You've forsaken me. Instead, you've tried to do your own thing, and it's not working out. And it will never work out because you can't get life without me. And that's the truth in this passage. Rules, spiritual experiences, emotional experiences, they all fall short. Jesus said the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Satan wants to give you bits of truth. You're like, that sounds true, and so I'm going to go and try and find fulfillment there. But Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest. Have it abundantly. Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. All the Old Testament, all those things, the Passover, the religious feasts, the new moon celebration, the Sabbath, they all pointed forward to Jesus in whom you could find true rest and whom you could find true life, the source of living water. All that other stuff will fall short. My challenge to you today is to stop chasing shadows, pursue Christ, and He will provide what you need. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank You for Your goodness and Your grace. Lord, we we fall short so often. So often we, we, we chase after shadows. We chase after things that won't provide satisfaction. In the midst of that, Lord, help us to pursue you. Help us to find our satisfaction in you. Help us to know you are good and your love endures forever. If there's anyone here today that's been trying to find salvation through shadows, trying to find salvation through good works, or, or trying to live a good life, help them to know and help them today to do the work that you require, to believe in Jesus Christ. Romans 10 says, if they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, they'll be saved. So we pray if there's anyone here today or anyone watching online that they will make that decision today to confess that you're Lord, to give you their lives for the rest of their lives, Lord. And Lord, as we now come to a time of communion, help us to 
stop and remember. Passover was a shadow. Something that pointed to you. But now we get to celebrate reality. What you accomplished on the cross. Thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen.